people ask me, you know, hey, what do you do for a living? I, I, you know, most of the time, if I don't know the person, I would just say, you know, I, I'm a computer programmer, which I'm not lying. That's what I do. But if, I, if, if I'm in the mood to open up a little bit, I, I, you know, I'll tell them I bet sports. And, you know, it, it usually goes one of two ways. It's either, you know, they look at me like I'm the coolest guy in the room, or some people will say, oh, I'm a degenerate loser. Uh, you know what I mean? It's, it's usually one of two ways, and, and, and I'm cool with it. Uh, it it's, it's okay. It's unconventional. You know, you could go to a cocktail party, and you'll have many doctors in the room. You'll have many engineers, many lawyers, all different facets of life. Very few cocktail parties I've been to where there were other pro sports bettors there. Um, I'm usually the only one. So it's a unique thing. It's a unique profession to have. And, um, and I embrace it at this point. You know, it's, 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 it's what I do. And it's, it's unconventional. And a lot of people, you know, they think it's the coolest thing. But, of course, they think all we do is just drink beer and watch sports all day. And that's far from the truth, obviously. So I kind of break it down that it's 100-hour weeks and, you know, in an unregulated environment where... Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if I'm going to get paid or not. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is Made in America, part two. To understand the business of sharp sports bettors, you have to zoom out a little and look at the economics of the whole system. Ray's simple explanation is a good place to start. There's one pie and the sharp gamblers and the bookmakers are pulling from that pie and all the money that comes in is coming in from the recreational gamblers. And, uh, we, you know, we kind of work hand in hand, I think, the sharp gamblers and the, uh, and the bookmakers. Another way to put it is that someone has to lose, and the recreational gamblers are going to be the ones providing the losses. But just because you start out a loser doesn't mean it always has to be that way. Our guests had to learn to win. So they're in a unique position to talk about what separates the pros from the recreational gamblers. The pros know when to just take a step back. And they don't believe in their own hype, you know. I think a lot of recreational guys, the suckers, they don't know how to accept that their opinion is wrong. And I think that, you know, just in any type of business, knowing when to admit you're wrong, take a step back and reevaluate. I think most guys are so adamant about their strategies and they want to believe that it works and they can't accept failure. You know, and I, I think that's a big thing. You know, not everything... I've touched has turned to gold. I've built several models and they, and most of them sucked. But I realized that. I was able to just go back to the basics. And I know that, you know, it, it's one of those things to be able to self-recognition that you don't have all the answers and that, you know what, if you could just be good at one thing, then focus on that one thing. Because to try to do it all and to be able to be the best at every sport or the best at everything is just such a, it's a, it's a hard uh, ring to try to, to, to try to attain. And I, I think that the recreational guy tries to be the, you know, the jack of all, master of all, where, where the pro would just want to be the master of one. Captain Jack makes YouTube videos that explain concepts like how to get money out of sportsbook promotions, but he doesn't tell people what games to bet. To use an analogy, he's not giving anyone a fish. 
He's teaching people to fish. If you go to any recreational better, the, the sport they love to bet the most is the NFL. And the sport that is the most impossible to win at is also the NFL. Why do these people always seem to chase the, the highest branch in the tree rather than going for the lower hanging fruit? It's an epidemic, really, with, with people that are betting into things that like they, they just will never be able to get an edge. And, and then on top of that, they make their bets in a non-optimal way. So in other words, like they, they might bet like an eight-team parlay rather than try to you know, win just one or two individual games or limit their scope in, in what they're trying to approach. They, they look at trying to beat the, the hardest market and the one that they believe they'll be able to brag the most about to their friends. Uh, when in fact, you know, winning at the WNBA is far easier than winning at the NBA, but nobody wants to admit like, oh, I'm, I'm a big better in the WNBA. You know, it's, it's almost like there's a, a bit of machismo involved when it comes to sports betting. And hey, the, the demographics bear it out. It's, it's a heavily male industry. A lot of these people are, you know, just in it for the, the bragging rights. And we see it with a lot of the media that's out there. It's, it's heavily focused in sort of that almost misogynistic view of, you know, how a sports better should be. It should be for the boys. It should be about, you know, betting on things to happen and betting on, you know, this team or that team or this guy or that guy. But really, no, it's about finding inefficiencies in the market. And right now, the biggest inefficiency in the market is that these sports betting operators in regulated states do not want to profit. They want to gain market share. They want to gain stock valuation. They're willing to spend three to $500 to acquire a customer. And, uh, you know, they're willing to give that money to some website where they refer you on to the sports book. My advice to people is no, don't, don't let somebody else take the three to $500 they're willing to spend on you. Let them give it to you, you know, maximize the sign up promo, maximize these boosts and promote promotional bonuses they offer on a daily, almost a daily basis. Go ahead and take your low hanging fruit. There's no style points awarded here. Uh, you know, money you earn from getting some ridiculous promotion is spends the same as money you earn by spending f- 48 hours in a week pouring over the NFL lines for that weekend's games and trying to find, a, you know, a winner by a half a point. There, there's just so much money to be to be made right now that it's it's kind of foolish to focus on trying to reach for the fruit that's high in the tree. I think their biggest issue is just not understanding the whole the whole concept. What I mean is, um, especially in today's marketplace, anything the recreational gambler can possibly think be thinking is a reason to bet side A or side B is probably already factored into that market into that line. Um, so unless they're doing something out of the ordinary with you know with metrics, um, anything they think they know about, oh, this quarterback or this, that, it's already in the market. So you're just betting it into the VIG. I think the biggest misconception is that there's a crystal ball for this. There's winners and losers. There's a winning side and a losing side. And and I don't think many of the gamblers understand, and it's all about a penny here, a penny there, you know, um, finding ways to indirectly or directly cut into our VIG. Whether it's, I think the best way is having multiple outs and always taking the best number. That in and of itself, I think, certainly cuts down your loss quite a bit. You know, um, you're indirectly cutting into the VIG like that. You know, you can also cut into the VIG by understanding if a game line's X, that the first half line should be Y. And picking the best of those two when, make, when making your bet, you know, and whatnot. Um, 
So um, I just don't – they just don't see the whole picture. They think there's either a winner or a loser. You, you, either side A is the right side or side B is the right side, no matter what happens. And I don't think they, they understand variance and, that, and just how efficient the market actually is, especially in the bigger sports now. It's fair to say that the pros and the Joes would differ on the issue of sweating their action. For recreational gamblers, the sweat is the entire point. But Jack says that over time, the excitement dissipates. I've made bets for an entire season where all I'm watching is the first pitch of a baseball game. I'm betting whether it'll be a ball or a strike. And I remember I had uh, the, the streaming product for MLB back then, and I would just, you know, pull up all the games, watch the first pitch and close, close the window after the first pitch. I'm sure the sports book thought they just had this crazy action junkie on the other side who was betting on one pitch, especially I was betting thousands of dollars on, on one pitch. But, you know, it's, after a while, I think, as any gambler could tell you or as any advantage player could tell you, there's a desensitization of their emotions when it comes to the, the roller coaster. And you just don't feel things as strongly uh, in either direction, wins or losses. Somewhat ironically, becoming a winner also means learning how to lose. I recently had a streak where I had a wager where it was a 60% play, and I was typically betting it uh, with a break-even of 48%. In other words, I only needed to hit 48% in order to break even, and my probability that I had it on it was 60%, and I went on a stretch of over 50 plays, uh, 11 and 39. (laughs) It's 22%, uh, which is, you know, it's just... It, it mind-bogglingly bad. And then on the other end of that is, you know, situations where you have a play and you just run in God mode over a month or two and you almost run too good to the point where you're afraid the sports book is, you know, going to definitely shut you down or, or close your account. I've seen so many guys, you know, come and go in the business. Guys that had a lot of potential and, and, and guys that were very smart and that just went tapioca. The discipline of it and the money management and kind of like believing their own shit doesn't stink catches up to people and then, you know once that happens and then you kind of just lose all control and you know you just gamble your life away you know figuratively speaking you're just done you know it's just gone you know i've seen it happen to, to a lot of a lot of people in the business and it's a sad thing the casual discussion of sports betting is heavy on terms like lead pipe locks or five star pick of the day but listen to pros, and you'll hear the language of the efficient market hypothesis. There's one gauge. The gauge of being able to win in this is, is beating the closing line. And that's it. Because that, that, in essence, shows me that I could beat the market, but it shows me that I have respect for the market because the closing line, I believe, is an accurate picture of, 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 of what the market line is. You do any type of back testing in, in, in any sport, and, and you know if you beat the closing line you know, over a significant number of trials, you're going to make money doing this. It's just, that, that's just how it is. That's the winning formula. I always, if somebody asks me advice, they say, you know, how do you pick winners? And I'm like, picking winners, I'll even boil it down to a more common denominator. How do you beat the closing line? Because beating the closing line is, will essentially lead to picking winners. And, and I think, you know, guys don't see that. The goal is to beat the closing line, not to pick winners. Because, you know, if you're winning short term and you're matching the closing line, most likely that's not going to last. If you believe the market is efficient, which all the data, you know, and, and if you look at the data in the past, it is efficient. You know, that closing number is very hard to beat. 
Remember from part one that Ray and his partners introduced an auto line mover at Bookmaker, but Ray says that the line mover doesn't respond to every bet. The way they know whether a better should move the line is by looking at that customer's history. The biggest thing we use to profile them is how their bet does versus the closing line. That would be probably the biggest uh, factor that we use, especially when a guy has less than, say, two to 3,000 bets with us. Now, as, as that bet count gets up into you know five digits, then we start actually taking their, uh, taking their actual result a little more as you know as what they're capable of you know um but results are so tricky you know the long run's almost never long enough so um you know you just have to be careful playing results you have to figure out things that are better at predicting future outcome and i think beating closing lines for the first few thousand bets is certainly a better predictor going forward than how you've actually done in those couple thousand bets but i think once you get 10 to 15 to 20,000 bets and and now your your actual result has to place somewhat of a role in in how good you're going to do in the future. Ray gets to see bets as they come in, and he knows which accounts are smart. But it's not like his customers are sending an essay about what they're doing. So he has to try to figure it out with limited information. I think the most frustrating thing for me is when a guy that I know is making a winning bet, and I don't know why that bet's a winning bet. How can that bet be good? I know it's good because he's making the bet. This, you know, there's only four to five guys that I can say that about. But when one of those guys comes in on a bet that just doesn't make sense to me, I think that's the most frustrating thing. Because most 99 out of 100, a guy makes a bet, and I know why he made it. And okay, I got to go here, I got to go there. But it's it's pretty frustrating when guys have better stuff than you have or better technology than you have now. And we're working on it, and we're going to get there. You know, we've got guys in the back room, you know, trying to make us better every day. But when a guy makes a bet that, like I said, you know is good and it just doesn't make any sense. You're like, why is he betting? And you've dug in all the injury stuff. You know it's not that. It's little, There's literally something in a vacuum that's making him make this bet, and I just don't know what it is, And which makes it tougher to be prepared for it the next time because if you don't know what, the, what it is, then it's hard for you to be ready for it when it happens again. You know, when I know a guy's betting something for a reason, then I know the next time they have that number in a different spot when that situation occurs. But if I don't know it, then he's just going to hit me with it again. And the next time that situation that I don't know about comes up. So I guess that's the most frustrating thing is trying to uh, is not knowing why a, a true professional better is making making a good bet. If a sports book attempts to balance sharp money on either side of the line, the natural consequence is that there will be times when the majority of the public money is on one side. We still take stands, you know, but we just don't take stands against the smart guys. The, the, the true professionals, we might, we'll use the sharp information sometimes to stay, take stands against the public when the public's, you know, pounding Kansas City type sides, if you will, in general, like the Super Bowl. But, um, but, um, yeah, so long story short, we do have some big swings at times, but it's because we do have the money to make what we're considering a good gamble now, you know, because we're not gambling against the, the sharpest guys in the world. We're gambling against everybody else based on what we think and what the sharpest gamblers in the world think, you know? So, um, so yeah, we certainly have our bad days. I don't think we question them. We just take them for what they are. When Spanky worked at Deutsche Bank, he was working on code to make it easier for firms like Renaissance Technology to trade. But compared to Wall Street, the sports betting industry is ass backwards. There are a series of valves that control how much liquidity enters the sports market. The valves are controlled by lawmakers, bureaucrats, and the books themselves. Everyone has their own idea 
as to what the Goldilocks amount of wagering should be. So getting money down becomes a challenge. You know, once you get to a certain level in any form of advantage play, sports betting, whatever, um, it, it, it's all about getting down. It's finding the play. You know, you know, card counting eventually becomes trivial. Whole carding, once you get good at it, it's not hard. Uh, winning at sports, placing winning bets, it's not hard. All these things, at one, once you get to a certain level, become standard. You just know how to do it. Um, the problem is, is finding the game, finding the circumstance, finding the outs, finding the, the bookmaker that will accept your bets. This is the challenge. This is always going to be the challenge. It'll never end. Um, and it's the constant challenge. And it's, um, you know, you, you have to find those avenues to be able to utilize your skills to turn a profit. And, and, and it's, it's, it's not easy. Sharp bettors and bookmakers have the kind of complicated relationship that can only come from relying on each other and also trying to take each other's money. You know, our relationship was always pretty good when we were when we were gamblers with with the bookmakers because you know the most important thing for us is we needed outs to bet. Without outs, we can't make money. So we didn't. We never wanted to do anything to to piss a book off or think we were jerking them around or trying to backside them here or there because you know we knew we were at a point where we could we could win we could win just by being fair, just by doing the right things. And we certainly wanted that reputation of um, always trying to. Uh, to do the right thing, if you will. Um. I've been trying to lay the groundwork to understand how Spanky found himself in the middle of a government investigation that resulted in dozens of arrests across the U.S. To explain it simply, a network of people were trying to bet with each other, and they were trying to do it in a system that has throttles in place. An example is that messenger betting is prohibited in Nevada. You can't pay a runner to go make a bet for you at a sports book. But the only entity the rule can possibly protect is the sports book. So what happens when the book intentionally ignores it? That was the atmosphere that led to 25 arrests, including everyone from low-level runners to an executive of Cantor Gaming, which ran a number of Las Vegas sports books, as well as Stan Thompson of Pinnacle Sports and Spanky's business partner, Chinese Mike. It was a crazy time, you know what I mean? Me and Chinese Mike, were share, we shared a cell together. We were, I was only locked up for two days, but me and Chinese Mike were able to share a cell. We kind of swapped out with these two black guys. We said, listen, we're Cody's, and they go, yeah, no problem, cool. One of the guys that were in there, um, you know, he told me, what are you in for? And I said, gambling, some gambling shit. And I remember the black kid, he was a nice kid. He told me, he goes, what are you, you know, you, you uh, playing CeeLo and shit like that? And I said, yeah, something like that. You know what I mean? It was just... It was kind of funny. Prosecutors made a production of saying that they'd busted a huge criminal enterprise. Almost every defendant was facing some combination of the following. Enterprise corruption, money laundering, promoting gambling, and conspiracy. Despite the 25 arrests and about 100 felony charges, the case fell apart like a sandcastle at high tide. To give you a sense of how poorly it went for the government, I just want to cover the highlights. Prosecutors produced a big diagram to illustrate their alleged conspiracy, and the top person on the flowchart was Stan Thompson of Pinnacle Sports, but he pleaded guilty to a single misdemeanor. Spanky was shown in the middle of the flowchart, and he pleaded guilty to promoting gambling, but never served any time in jail after his initial arrest. By far, the largest fallout was money. 
millions of dollars were seized from the various defendants, even from people that ended up with misdemeanors. Um, I know it sounds cliche, but I was charged for a crime I didn't commit. You know, I was charged with bookmaking and, and doing all this, and I, and I wasn't booking. I was, I was a better. But, you know, they, they, they know there was money involved, and they seized a bunch of money, and they saw that, you know, most of these cases, particularly that come out of Queens, are money grabs. They just want, they just want the money. Obviously, it doesn't benefit society to lock a guy like me up. It was definitely experience that, that, that kind of shaped me, and uh, it kind of made me more cynical of life and kind of, you know, made me stop dreaming of, uh, of our criminal justice system being about right and wrong and made me realize it's about winning and losing. And it's a sad, it's a sad realization because you kind of grow up believing that, you know, justice is served and everything's just right and wrong, black and white. But uh, it isn't that way. Everything is just about power and winning. And there's a lot of people that get trampled on and that are victims of this system. You know, me, it's okay. What? I got a felony. I didn't do another day in jail. They took some money, okay, no problem. But to see guys that actually do prison time or, you know, that that, that that can't recoup, it sucks. You know what I mean? Sometimes the time doesn't fit the crime, and that's a sad thing. The legalization of sports betting doesn't mean that the market is working any better for Spanky. The books that serve the legalized markets don't tolerate sharp money. So they either just close the accounts of people they think might be sharp, or severely limit their bets. And these operators have also come up with some clever spin to sell their business plan. They don't want to put up a sign that says, Losers Wanted, so they claim to serve the quote-unquote recreational better. I don't know anybody that says, Yeah, I'm just betting I'm definitely going to lose. Ha ha. Nobody does that. People that bet sports take pride in that shit. They really believe that they know, you know, they know the winners of the games. They watch so much sports. It's like one of those things in which... It's, 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 they think it's correlated where the, the more sports you know, the more money you're going to make. You have to be able to win doing this. And, and, and that's what sports books are filled with. That's what the industry is filled with. But you want to be able to keep that dream alive because obviously the majority of people will never be able to overcome that house edge. But the people that do, it sucks that that glass ceiling is there and that they can't advance because once you get good enough – Boom, you get kicked in your ass, get out of here. You know, if you're a losing player and 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 you wind up hitting a 12-team parlay and you get a big check and they'll take pictures with you, whatever, they know you're going to give it back. But the guys are going to consistently beat you. They'll kick you in the ass. They'll tell you you're no longer wanted. They'll limit you to literally $3.56. Um, these are the type of numbers that I've seen people be limited to. One guy was limited to $1.10. Uh, to, one guy was limited to a dime, and when he said it was funny, he said a dime. When he said a dime, it wasn't a thousand dollars; it was ten cents. So there's people that are limited to ten cents. Captain Jack says that the books aren't just throwing out sharps; they're throwing out anyone that might be a winner. There's a fundamental American way of doing business. In other words, if if somebody says, "Come on in, take your shot at us," uh, anyone who wants to try and beat us, go ahead and try to beat us. We're the best, but you can go ahead and try. Uh, then they better be willing to let people come in and try and beat them. But what we're seeing with a lot of, especially with a lot of these European operators, is they're saying, "You can come on in and bet, but we're going to decide if uh, we want to take your action." And even if you're not beating us, but we think like maybe you could possibly someday beat us, we're going to trim you out because here's the truth about sports betting is it's a low margin industry. And these operators do not want 
to operate on low margin. They want to operate on really fat margins. They want to lead you into their online casino where the slots have a 90% payback. Uh, they want to lead you into these parlay bets where the the house edge is compounded because uh, you know the, the, it's rolled over from leg to leg in the parlay. Uh, they want to lead you into these futures bets where the, there's a basically a 20% theoretical hold in that market. They don't want you betting minus 110 t- uh, to win 100 uh, you know, where it's only a 4.5% edge. They want you to be betting into an 8 or 10 or 20% edge. And so they want to trim out these coin flip players that are basically you know, losing at a very low margin and enjoying themselves. They don't even want those guys. It's not so much banning winners. It's about banning people that are sustainable customers. Uh, that's the real racket here. Is, is I just don't understand why these sports books would be throwing away what are long-term profitable customers that just lose at a lower rate. One of the problems for books that don't take sharp money is that they haven't paid for a good line. They're just copying from somewhere else, most likely an offshore book that does take sharp money. It's astonishing how bad it really is. I mean, like an, a quick example would be one of my friends that was beating these places for a while. Let's say he goes in and um, lays three and a half on a first half of a given game. Well, they don't move the number. So he tries to bet it again, naturally, if you know if your bankroll can afford that risk and you think that's a good number. and Well, no, you can't bet it again. I was like, well, well, well then why? Why can't I bet it again? No, because you, you, you bet it already. But So do you want me to call that guy over there to come make the bet for me? I mean, why wouldn't you move your number if you don't want if you don't want any more money at that number? Why are you not moving the number? And it would be a back and forth, and the guy wouldn't even understand the concept really. Oh, he just understood. Well, no, you made your bet. You can't bet it again. You know, we we don't want that bet from you again. You know, well, if you don't want that bet, and if you're respecting this guy's, but well, why wouldn't you move the three and a half to four or whatever? Whatever, make them make a move, and it just shows the lack of understanding that most of these guys running these uh walk-in shops or whatever you want to call them now, um, um, have of the actual market, the sports marketplace, if you will, you know, it's a real simple concept. You take a bet, you move the number, you take a bet, you move the number, you know, especially if you're a smaller shop that doesn't want a ton of risk, you almost kind of ignore, I would be more inclined to ignore sharps at that point and just, just write a bet, move a number, write a bet, move a number. And at some point your business grows and you can start letting some of the sharper guys influence where your number is and stand stand your ground a little bit more but um i it's just astonishing the lack of knowledge that most of these uh most of these places have and i it just is what it is but i guess that's a good thing for me currently because uh we're certainly way ahead of the game as far as understanding this market and knowing how to treat it up until you know 10 15 years ago it didn't really happen being thrown out and being limited at sports books is just recently a common practice. You know, when I was first coming up, it was maybe I just wasn't sharp enough, but, you know, not really because they all the sports books that I played into took guys like Billy Walters on. They took them on for a decent pop, and they moved their number. Um, and that's the thing. Like, it, it's one of those things in which, it, it, because there, there's talent involved, you know, you, you put the customer first, essentially, and it was just unheard of to kick out a player for winning. You deal with it. That's why you, you know, 11 is bigger than 10. You make the 110 work for you. And, 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 and guys just, unfortunately, it's an art form. It's a talent. And that talent is missing today. The net result is that Spanky still does his business in the murky, unregulated world. 
you know, I can't bet at a place, betxyz.com, and then, you know, the guy doesn't pay me. I can't file a lawsuit. Uh, you know, the judge will say, what are you doing playing at betxyz.com? This isn't a regulated uh, sports book. Get this crap out of my courtroom. So, you know, I, I, there's no recourse. There's, there's nothing I could do to try to get paid. So everything's based on word of mouth, on handshakes, on reputation. And that there's, there's good in that, and of course there's bad in that. And, and it's just the life I live. Everything, you know, uh, I, I just grown accustomed to it that everything I do is, is on my word and, and, and it's everything to me. This fear of not getting paid isn't a hypothetical either. It happens. So one of the first few times I got stiffed, I'll never forget the line. It was an unbelievable line that the guy told me. It was called sportbet.com. And I'll never forget the clerk told me, and I quote, this is the exact quote, all your winning wagers are canceled and your losing wagers stand. And I, I, I said, what? Are you kidding me? Like, repeat that? I couldn't believe the guy just said that to me. Like, it's, it's just a pure F you, we're not paying you, whatnot, whatnot. So what recourse did you have for that? It was one of those things that back in the day there was forums, Major Wager, the RX, Sportsbook Review, Better's World. Um, I'm forgetting a few of them, but those are the ones I remember. And, you know, you would go on there and, you you know, a lot of sportsbooks got a lot of clients from those forums. And you would kind of go to these forums and say, hey, listen, this guy's not paying me this, that. And these guys hated that publicity. And I didn't really know too many people back then. So I'd go to the forums and I'd talk and I'd email the moderator of the forums and Hey, this guy's not paying me. He just told me all my winning wagers are canceled, but my losing wagers stand. And people couldn't believe it. Like, what? So, you know, a couple of phone calls later, I wind up getting paid. But, uh, it, it you know, that was that had a happy ending. There was definitely some sad endings there where I didn't get paid. Guys would just go fall under. And uh, and it sucked. You know what I mean? Bookmakers would just would just go under. And, and you just, you know, you, you, you wouldn't know what to do about it. A lot of the time, it happened after the Super Bowl. You know, usually after the Super Bowl, uh, bookmakers would have so much money on deposit that, if you know, that was the time to run because they just were holding everybody's money. Without legal protections in place, Spanky has to rely on his own wits. I think there's no substitution for street smarts um, in this business. I personally don't know of anybody that is making a living betting sports that is exclusively betting in regulated markets, meaning domestically in the U.S. It just doesn't exist. You have to rely on offshore markets. When you rely on offshore markets, it's unregulated. There is no guarantee you're going to get paid. So you have to be able to do your due diligence, know who you're dealing with. And there's times when you deal with street bookmakers, the paper head guys. They're street guys. You know, there's a time in which I, I beat a guy out of, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was 20 some thousand. I think it was $24,000. And, you know, the guy got me on the phone and goes, you know, we, we, we want to see you to come pick up your money. You know, meet us at this diner. You know, this guy was definitely connected guy. He was a wise guy. A lot of people, oh, my God, this guy is going to kill me or it's going to lock me up in a trunk. You start thinking like that, then, you know what I mean, you shouldn't be in this business. It's, it's just part of the business. I'm, you know, it's, 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 just, it's there. So it's either you deal with it or, you know, you don't. I, you know, I dealt with it. So I'd go and I'd meet this guy. And then, you know, him and he was like three, four other guys were sitting around, big, tough guys. They try to intimidate you. And, but, but, you know, it's all a business, you know, everything. And he asked me, I remember, I'll never forget it. He goes, you know, why should I pay you this money? And I, I told him, I said, because, and I remember my answer exactly. I said, because if I would have lost the money, I would have paid you on Monday. And he looked me in the eye and he said, I believe you. 
and he, he looked at his guy and the guy handed me the package. You know, a lot of guys would just not even take the meeting. A lot of guys would not want to get paid, would say, okay, whatever, I'll just write it off. This guy's trying to intimidate me. But no, because these guys are business guys. And sure, they might use different means or whatever, but as long as there's no injustice done to them, nobody's going to hurt you. Nobody's going to harm you. It's a business transaction. When you win, you should get paid. When you lose, you pay. And I think the guy wanted to just make sure I wasn't taking a shot at him, and he wanted to look me in the eye and make sure that if I did lose, I was going to be able to come, I would have paid him. And I, and, and I, I don't know if what answer would have gotten me paid or not. That answer did get me paid, but it was the, it was the truth because I, there's not one person in my life that I've stiffed. Uh, I pay everybody and I, and I haven't been paid by everybody, but I try to get paid. And, and you know, there's times where you just don't get paid, but I'm not going to let the underworld of the business, uh, deter me. It just, you know, whatever I, you know, it sucks. Sometimes in this business, you got to deal with the devil. It's a necessary evil that you know you kind of can't shy away from. You gotta get, you gotta do it. You know, if I were to hand my business over to my kid, would I want him dealing with that? Absolutely not. You know, I grew up in Jersey City. You know, I was, I grew up with gangsters and all this other shit. And I've seen a lot of shit. My kid grew up in the suburbs of Freehold, New Jersey, where you know you'd have play dates and shit and card. You know, everything was just ha la 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 la. You know what I mean? It, it's just easy. So my kid wouldn't be able to adapt to something like that, in my opinion. And I would not want my kid being involved in that. So I know it's long-winded, but there is no substitution for street smarts. You have to be able to think on your feet and deal with the underworld as long as this business is in an unregulated environment. And until more bookmakers come ashore um, that are able to take guys like me on, we just have to deal with it. We have to deal with the offshore world. There's an argument which says that the newly regulated sports books are private businesses and they should be able to do business with whomever they choose. So the complaining from the pros about being kicked out and having their accounts limited is overblown. I think this argument has a number of problems, but let's start with consumer protection. We know that the operators have a voice. They have a lobby. They they contribute a lot of money to politicians to get laws enacted and regulations enacted that favor their ability to function as an operator. Uh, we know that the problem game, gaming people have a voice. You know, that's always a voice that politicians like to hear from. The anti-gaming or even the problem gaming people, they have a voice. And we know that the sports leagues have a voice. Oh, they definitely have a voice. And, and they've thrown their weight around for a decade now. Um, as the sands have shifted, they've changed their opinions. And, uh, you know, it's something out of a scene from 1984, the, the Orwell book of people saying, no, that's not what we ever said. We always were in support of this. And there's no irreparable harm here. But the consumer, the consumer does not have a voice. We we do not have somebody stepping up and saying, this is what it's really like to try and win at sports. There's a glass ceiling here that nobody's acknowledging. There, You can only get to bet so much if you're proven to be a huge sucker. If regulators allow sports books to kick out winners, it's akin to saying that the only legitimate kind of gambler is a loser, which is crazy. Because at least when sports betting was illegal... There was a real concern for the well-being of the public. I sort of think people should be able to make their own mistakes, but at least prohibition was well-intentioned. The rules that replace prohibition, which implicitly support the idea that gamblers should only be losers, end up protecting bookmakers. 
these operators are operating in the public trust. In other words, if we're letting our states regulate them and they're kind of hand in hand with the operators, the states are, then the, the consumer needs to be also in that picture and they need to have public trust towards these operations so that they know that, oh, I'm welcome to try and win, not that, you know, it's the heads I win, tails you lose scenario, which has been playing out. The title of this episode is Made in America, and it came from something Captain Jack said. He said there's a fundamental American way of doing business, but the sports betting industry that's emerged through legalization is a vivid example of politicians joining corporations to view the public as a mark or a source of cash to extract. You can go on Twitter to see governors brag about how much money their state bet, while actual sportsbook employees gloat about how much their customers lost. It's almost hard to believe how quickly the prevailing sentiment went from sports betting is bad and we should protect people from themselves to there are suckers out there and we should bleed them dry before someone else does. The point isn't that we should feel sorry for Spanky or Captain Jack or any other sharp. The point is that American ideals like the value of competition and fairness and entrepreneurship have been replaced by a deep, deep cynicism. If billion-dollar gaming companies are protected from guys in their underwear running a regression model in Microsoft Excel. And unfortunately, you don't have to look very hard in America today to find other examples of this kind of thing happening. I don't want to beat this dead horse anymore so we can move on, because our guests have insights that go beyond the business. Advantage gamblers are willing to live outside of society's norms, so it might seem like they've hardened themselves to social pressures. But Jack talked about the gambler's version of keeping up with the Joneses. I remember early on in my AP career, an AP, a fellow AP, sent me a picture of himself posing with a million dollars in cash and chips on a play that they had won in Las Vegas at, a, at one of the big strip casinos. And I was like, wow, man, I got to I got to take a picture like that someday. So I always said, you know what, I'll, I'll make sure I one day I'll have a million dollars in cash in my safe and I'll take a picture like that. But here's the thing. APs are we're largely anonymous. So I'm not going to be sharing my picture around to the rest of the world. That would be foolish. Uh, I would only be sharing it to like a handful of other APs that I network with. But I, I kept going with this. And I'd say I got I wouldn't keep all of my bankroll in cash, but I would I would prefer to keep a large portion of my bankroll in cash. And, uh, you know, it kept growing and growing. And when I hit like, I don't know, it was like six or seven hundred thousand dollars in this safe. I'm like, why am I doing this? I have all these old bills. I have these bills that are now having trouble being accepted into bill readers because they're too older size. They're not the size that was the, uh, the large Benjamin Franklin, but still the green money. Uh, they're the older ones than that. And, uh, you know, everyone has these blue $100 bills now. <laughs> so I had this glut of cash and cash is, it depreciates, you know, inflation goes up, cash doesn't. And uh, it was really foolish of me if I would have just put that, you know, half of that money into the market or into something that was gaining interest, because I never had to use you know, all of those funds. I never had a trip where I was like, oh, I better bring $600,000 on this trip because, you know, I might need it. Um, It was just really foolish of me to not want to use my money to work for me in some sort of interest-bearing account. Um, 
and and have this fascination with wanting to take this picture with a million dollars. Having a job outside the mainstream can also be a source of friction. If for no other reason than explaining what you do results in a very long conversation. Yeah, for the longest time, I had the I had a big mental hurdle when it came to admitting to people what my job was. And not because I was ashamed of what I do. It's because I just didn't feel like dealing with the questions and dealing with the, uh, you know, having to explain things. Uh, right after I left working in IT at this large law firm, I was doing some consulting work on the side for a couple other smaller law firms. And so I would tell people, oh, I'm an IT consultant. Um, you know, I just do contract work for smaller law firms, even though that, you know, that kind of dissipated within a year or two. I still kind of held on to that for six or seven years because it was just so hard to, when you say you're a professional gambler, you know, immediately they think poker player. And I go, no, I'm not a poker player. And they go, oh, you count cards? And I go, no, I used to, but I I don't really do that anymore. I I do more sports betting. And they just assume you're a bookie and, you know, you make lines or you're, you know, people bet into you. And it, it, it was really tough. But I think the toughest part was when I would have to talk about what I did for a living to uh, a bank or some kind of official information where I, I couldn't lie or, you know, it kind of disguise the truth. And like, you know, you just know that a red flag has gone up in their mind because you said you're a professional gambler uh, and you want to explain it more. You want to say, you know, here, this is how I have an edge. This is this is where market inefficiencies exist. And this is how I take advantage of it. This is what makes me not that much different from somebody who is on Wall Street and working finance and and, and derivatives trading. But you don't get that opportunity. You just get that one chance. And so for the longest time, I just kind of wanted to avoid having to try to explain it and just say, oh, I do, uh, I do IT consulting for, for smaller law firms. Jack has seen a lot of plays come and go over his career. He's always been looking for the next thing, and he's always been able to find it. But he knows there's no guarantee that continues forever. I think the hardest part is the uncertainty uh, of, of what the future is. You know, in other words, I've said that I'm always trying to evolve into the next thing. But what if I can't find the next thing? Or what if there is no next thing? I can't go and do something that was profitable 10 years ago for me because that inefficiency has dried up. So it's sort of like that uncertainty of not being able to look more than a couple years down the line. Uh, it's one of the reasons why when I went to be a full-time professional gambler is also when I started the clock towards retirement. And it was, you know, a couple of years ago now that I, I actually set up my ramp. I'm ramping up to a number. And when I get to that number, I do not need to use Advantage Play as my primary source of income anymore. I'll have enough passive sources of income that I can not have to rely on sports betting or other forms of Advantage Play anymore. And I'm still progressing towards that. The ramp has has been a little bit flatter than I had wanted it to because of uh, 2020 being such an off year. But at the same time, uh, you know, that's what I always have that ramp in my mind and, you know, just keep on going down that ramp or up that ramp, actually. Uh, so we can get to that point where we can stop relying on advantage play to, uh, you know, be the, the primary source of income. Spanky's reflections would be familiar to anyone that has spent years obsessed with a single goal. You know, the first thing is you don't have to be the best in the world. I always thought that if I was going to do something, I always wanted to be the best. And I'd sacrifice everything to get there. Um, and that included spending time with my family and whatnot. Um, I think you, you've got to be able to be content with just to be able to support your family and have a good livelihood. You know, you don't have to try to make every single last dollar in the world. 
And, and I think that's something that I, I wish I kind of, uh, I kind of would have changed uh, and, and would have done back in the past. I think embracing the hate is another important thing. Uh, I think hate, you know, having people hate you is a byproduct of success. You know, you can't make the world love you. You know, nobody unsuccessful is hated on. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of people in the business that don't like me. You know, a lot of pro gamblers, a lot of guys that just, I don't know, you know, whether I, I, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, you're ruining the business, you're hurting the markets or whatnot. And and it's cool. You know what I mean? That's just part of it. You know what I mean? My technology, my speed is pretty fast and I get information fast and guys get jealous of that or they just don't want me around or whatnot. It, it, it is what it is. But I'm going to do me and for people to hate on me, that's okay because I, I don't hate on anybody. Uh, you know, if anybody could find a way to earn in this business by any means possible, go ahead, knock yourself out. It's a tough business to make and earn, and, and if you could do so, you know, God bless you. La- you know, last but not least, I think the biggest, another thing that I would I would tell my younger self is to cherish, you know, your kids when they're young. The most, you know, overused yet truest line there is, is, you know, they grow up so fast. I think the kids grow up real fast, and, you know, it's my kids are so much older now, and, you know, uh, 15, 13, 11, and 9, you know, it's just, it's, it's crazy how, how fast they grow up. So I wish I kind of cherished those moments a little bit more. One of the cruelties of being equipped only with a human brain is that when you're winning, it seems like you can't lose. And when you're losing, it feels like you can't ever win. Try never to get too high and never to get too low. Like, you know, as long as you're, you know, you're doing the right things to be successful, don't let the bad times bother you so much and don't, don't get so uh, don't get too cocky when things are going good, you know, because things are never as good as they seem, and things are never as bad as they seem, you know. Um, so to just to stay a little more even keeled, and uh, and just know that this, you know, this is all hard work. You know, you have people constantly that, um, oh, it's so exciting what you do. It's got to be great to just be able to to just gamble for a living. And I don't think they have any idea how much work it is. So it's something that. You can't do, I don't think, without a true passion for it because you have to enjoy it. Because I certainly work harder doing this than I ever would have worked at any other job, you know, just normal nine to five. But at the end of the day, it doesn't feel like work because it's what I enjoy doing. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Spanky, Captain Jack, and Ray Marino. Also, special thanks to the people at bookmaker.eu for coordinating the interview with Ray. As a footnote to this episode, Spanky did a full podcast about closing line value that I'll link to in the show notes. He also did an interview with his friend Chris Bruno, who spent three years in prison for bookmaking. It's one of the best interviews I've ever heard, so you can also find a link to that episode in the show notes. Also, be sure to check out Captain Jack's YouTube channel, which has a number of educational videos. 